You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum. Good morning and welcome to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam Radio. The time is two minutes past ten on today, Sunday the 12th of November, 2023. On Weekend World, we go behind the week's headlines and uh, get into some of the detail of things that have been happening. The current ongoing war in Israel and Gaza has captured the headlines and continues unabated, and the tragic effects of that war are really felt on the people in Gaza for the most part, but most especially on children. Yesterday we saw protests on the streets of London and New York, um, reports of Uh, hundreds of thousands of uh, peaceful protesters walking the streets of London calling for a ceasefire and uh, with some degree of rather pained irony um, far-right protesters as well uh, protesting on the streets of London kept separate by the uh, Metropolitan Police from the uh, protesters Uh, seeking a ceasefire, and uh, with some rather painful political rhetoric as well, Um, and the question being asked that uh, why are people asking for a ceasefire on Armistice Day, a a day remembering a ceasefire, uh, a day remembering the end of World War I. Moving back to the question of those most painfully affected by the ongoing conflict in Gaza. It has had a devastating impact on children, especially, who are among the most vulnerable and affected by the violence and destruction. According to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, 4,104 children have been killed in Gaza during this war in the last month. That is one child every 10 minutes, and many more have been injured, displaced, or traumatized. The effects of the conflict on children are readily apparent. Children in Gaza face constant threats to their lives and well-being as they are exposed to airstrikes, artillery fire, and the explosive remnants of the ongoing war. Many children have lost their limbs eyesight or hearing or have suffered from burns, fractures or internal injuries. Some children require complex medical care that is not available in Gaza due to the damage or destruction of health facilities, the shortage of medicine and equipment and the blockade imposed by Israel. Children also face the risk of infectious diseases due to the overcrowded and unsanitary living conditions in shelters or camps. Children are also at risk of uh, mental health and trauma. And children in Gaza, even before this current conflict, experienced high levels of psychological distress, such as fear, anxiety, sadness, anger and grief, due to the exposure to violence, death and loss. Many children suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or other mental disorders which can affect their functioning, coping and resilience. And children also experience nightmares, flashbacks, avoidance and hyperarousal, 
which could interfere with their sleep concentration, socialization, and emotional regulation. I think it's worth remembering that for a child who is 16 years old now in Gaza, that child will have lived through six wars in that very short period of time. As far as the education and development of children in Gaza is concerned, they face an ongoing challenge in accessing and continuing their education due to the closure or damage of schools and the disruption of school attendance and the displacement of the students and the teachers. Uh, and many children will miss out on their curriculum, having a lifelong effect on them and their ability to participate in society in the future. The other great challenge for uh, individual children living in Gaza is access to food and nutrition and growth is an ongoing issue and food security is an ongoing issue for these for these children but right now they face the danger of acute malnutrition and starvation which can obviously affect their immune system their growth and development but more acutely risks death by starvation Over over the last few days, we have seen also the um, the tragedy which has been caused by the lack of healthcare facilities for children in Gaza. And I'd like to read to you um, a message from a doctor at the Al Shifa Hospital in Gaza. We know Al Shifa Hospital is under siege of occupation tanks for for the third day and no one can enter or exit the hospital everyone tries to get out of the hospital they have shots fired on them by drones and tanks the health system in the hospital is totally collapsed no electricity no water no anesthesia no food you all have heard of the babies dying in incubators and for not having oxygen we need a safe way to evacuate patients medical staff and displaced people to other hospitals and other hospitals to treat those patients. And you will have heard in the news that uh, the Israeli government has uh, offered to help to get patients out, but only if um, Hamas were to release hostages. So any even humanitarian pause would only occur if Hamas were to release hostages. So essentially those individuals in the hospital are also being held hostage by the situation which is happening right now. I'm very lucky to be joined on the line uh, today by Dr. Abdul Alim and Khalil Yusuf, regular contributors to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Dr. Alim. Wa alaikum Dr. Thank you for having me. And Assalamu alaikum, Khalil. Wa and we just heard a. Um, you know, I gave a, a brief summary of of some of the challenges faced by children in in this ongoing disaster. And and in today's program, I, I'd like to talk more broadly also about the rights of children, as defined in the United Nations United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, and 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 also a reflection on the rights that Islam gives children. But I mean, first, uh, Dr. Leem, if I can. Uh, turn to you and and just in terms of the current situation for children in Gaza this isn't a new thing that is said for a 16 year old child they will have experienced six wars over the last 16 years um, but but this is um, one of the one of the most acute and painful um, situations that we that we see right now for 
uh, for children there in Gaza. Um, your your thoughts on this? Um, well, I think that uh, uh, you know the situation is of course really dire, and uh, we're all uh, experiencing a, a huge amount of um, worry, concern, and of course uh, sadness on our parts. Uh, we as doctors, of course, are even doubly affected because we know there's so much that can be done and is not being able, not being carried out because there is. Uh, a huge amount of violence going on um, by Israel onto the uh, facilities that are available in Gaza, um, and the uh, and our timelines uh, and television screens are full of uh, uh, most inhuman atrocities that anybody can witness mm-hmm. uh, in this current state of uh, in this current state of affairs. And so I think that, uh, of course, uh, on one level, there is a, a huge amount of uh, violation of basic human rights and rights of children. Uh, but also the fact that this is actually superimposed on a very long 75 years of occupation of um, the occupied territories in Palestine. Mm. And, and a more intense sort of a siege since uh, early 2004 uh, of the current uh, Gaza Strip. Uh, and parts of West Bank. And this has, of course, led to uh, what we could call a silent emergency over the last 16 to 17 years. And of course, as you know, uh, many children have grown up in Gaza who have never seen the outside world, uh, who have never been outside the Gaza Strip because of the uh, because of the state of siege, which uh, mm. which uh, allows many people, which actually has many people say that Gaza is really a concentration camp. Uh, because everything that goes in and out of Gaza is uh, essentially controlled and uh, allowed in or allowed out by the Israeli uh, state. And so I think that um, the situation is really, really dire. And, uh, um, you know, it was really heartening to see, as you're saying, uh, you know, a large number of people among hundreds of thousands, even million people turning up around the world, not just in New York and London, but also in Jakarta, in Berlin, in France, Paris, everywhere people are protesting and asking their governments to respond and uh, do a full ceasefire. Mm -hmm. And yet we still see when we get up today that the situation has not really changed and uh, the atrocities continue. So um, it is really a very... uh, solemn moment for us mm. to, to resort to prayers. Thank you, Dr. Lehman. Khalil, just, just bringing this to you, I mean, just on a human level, each of us responds with enormous pain when we hear of children being killed in this conflict. But by way of comparison, it's a, it's a horrible thing to, to, to have to do, but by way of comparison, there isn't a, a single war in the last few years in which as many children uh, as this have been killed at such an alarming rate whether it's you know the war the war in ukraine which has been going on for close to two years whether it was um the conflict in afghanistan more children have died in syria but over a, over a longer period of time it, it's a it's a horrible comparison to have to make but it just underlines how devastating this situation is um it's actually so difficult to speak about this topic because uh, we, you know, as parents, all of us are parents and, you know, we know how much we care for our children. And even if our children are even slightly ill, it's very upsetting for us as mm-hmm. parents. 
And so you mentioned at a human level, at a human level to even conceive the loss of just one child and to think about how that must make the parents of that child feel is in itself difficult. You know, sometimes here in Britain we hear stories about child cruelty that come in the newspapers and it's always quite horrifying when you hear about something that has happened to a child in this country because their parents haven't cared for them or, or some horrific incident has happened. And invariably that's just, you know, one child. You think about the stories years ago of uh, of Jamie Bulger, for example, and they're still etched into the hearts and minds of, of everybody here in this country. Mm. But when you think about the number of children, you know, tens of thousands of children over the course of many years that have been caught up in conflict and killed. And then, you know, possibly the hundreds of thousands that have suffered mental health issues, that have had physical injuries, that have had uh, internal injuries, that have perhaps become suicidal, the whole direction of their lives have changed as a result of this conflict. It actually becomes unfathomable to think about the consequences that uh, these conflicts, particularly over the course of the last 75 years, have had on children, children who are entirely innocent, who have no prospect of avoiding this cruel, tortuous imposition that is placed upon them by war and conflict. And so I think that if for no other reason, it is the responsibility of the international community to be firm and to be decisive in ensuring that children are in all circumstances protected from the consequences of this horrific war. And even where there are sites where a party might claim there are some militants, that restraint is adopted so that if there are innocent women and children in the vicinity of those militants, alternative methods are used to engage in the war and attack the enemy without having to uh, harm innocent women and children who, who may be caught up in, in it, you know, and I think that, you know, the military of, uh, of uh, certainly Israel and other countries is so advanced and so precise that if they chose to, you know, they could find much more surgical methods of battling with their enemy in a manner that doesn't harm children. So, so my message is that all of us, if there is one message that we should be sending to our leaders and to our politicians and that politicians should be sending to uh, those I think we may have lost uh, Khalil there for a, for a moment um, hopefully we can get him back um, and I think that Khalil was about to give a message to, to politicians and, and I think that the greatest challenge that we have in this situation is that each of us as individuals can only give voice to what we think to be true. Uh, we can write to our MPs, we can uh, stand peacefully uh, in protest, we can give voice to 
uh, what we think each, each of us has our own platform, but ultimately it's up to those who are our representatives, politicians, uh, people we hope of good conscience to stand up and to uh, to say that uh, enough is enough and to call for a ceasefire in, in the name of all humanity. Um, Khalil, uh, hopefully I've got you back now. Yes, sorry about that. I don't know what happened. It just uh, disconnected. Uh, so Khalil, uh, you, were, you were about to give a message to, to politicians, to those in charge. Yeah, I was going to say that you know, to, to all of us who are concerned about this, you know, it's important that we engage with our politicians and with our leaders and send a very clear message that the loss of life of innocent women and children is totally unacceptable mm -hmm. and that it should be stopped immediately and our politicians and international organizations need to take similar decisive steps and ensure that uh, steps are taken so that innocent women and children are not needlessly caught up in this uh, conflict and if there is limited space and uh, the concentration of people is too great to ensure that military operations can continue without harming children, then uh, a humanitarian corridor needs to be opened up and all women and children should be allowed to leave so that they are not exposed to these horrific consequences of this war. Thank you, Khalil. Uh, uh, moving on to one of the main points of discussion that I'd like for us to go through today, which is the rights of children. 1989 was something of a landmark year for the rights of children. Here in the UK, we had the Children Act 1989, which uh, enshrined in law the rights of children, but also the UN Charter on the Rights of Children, which is a document that outlines the basic human rights that every child under the 18, uh, age of 18 should enjoy and be protected by. It was adopted by the UN General Assembly in 1989 and is the most widely ratified human rights treaty in history. And almost every country in the world has signed the Charter, except, uh, rather unfortunately, for the United States. And the Charter consists of 54 articles that cover various aspects of a child's life, such as their health, education, family identity, expression, participation, protection and development. Uh, and it also defines who a child is and what their responsibilities are, recognising that they're not just the passive recipients of rights, but also active agents of change. There are four general principles in the Charter, and the first of which is non-discrimination, and all children have equal rights regardless of their race, religion, gender, etc., the second is the best interests of the child. All decisions and actions that affect children should consider their best interests and well-being. The third is the right to survival, life and development. And all children have the right to live and grow up in a safe and healthy environment. And the fourth is the right to be heard. And all children have the right to express their views and opinions and be listened to and taken seriously. And that that is the... A broad summary of what is a what is a very large and quite comprehensive document um, enshrining the rights of children. Dr. Aleem, if I can if I can turn to you here, when we think about 1989, that is now a few decades ago, over three decades ago, 
and we think about now i mean it it feels also that 1989 was was rather late in in enshrining in international law the rights of children uh, but it's been three decades since then what progress has the world made do you think in being able to live up to these ideals um in enshrining the the rights of children to be able to live uh, and develop um in peace in the world I think that um, um, most of the human rights treaties that the United Nations has passed, among these, as you mentioned, uh, the UDHR, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, passed on in 1948, and this one in 1990, of which Pakistan was actually a co-sponsor, are the most widely ratified, and as you said, um, you know, indeed only the only exception to the ratification of the CRC is the United States of America. Um, it has uh, had a profound impact, actually, on the world. Uh, when it was uh, ratified uh, in 1990, it has been used as an instrument to monitor the rights of the children across the world. Um, and uh, in fact, there is a very clear mechanism um, by the General Assembly of monitoring the child rights in every part of the world. Mm. Uh, I have worked with the UNICEF, as you know, for almost 25 years. And at least in five to six countries that I had operated in, um, we took the country through every couple of years a full report that was to be delivered by the country to the uh, to the United Nations, to the Secretary General, on the conditions of children across uh, across the countries. And uh, these reports were very detailed. They would go by each right, as you have mentioned in your summary, uh, on whether those rights of children are being met or not. And in fact, uh, in some cases, um, we have used these uh, reports where countries would feel would uh, fall short of uh, expectations or what they had committed to uh, in the in the charter. One would uh, was able to use these as instruments of policy influence with the governments to say their budgets need to be aligned with the uh, Charter of Rights for the Children. So I would say that over the last uh, many years since the resolutions and the charter has been uh, passed, um, there has been a tremendous progress on making sure that the rights of children are met in every country. Um, Political leadership is held to account if uh, there are violations of these rights. Uh, And um, it has been built upon in terms of consolidating um, you know, the rights of children everywhere in the world. So it has played a very positive role uh, across the world in terms of uh, both facilitating and giving UNICEF a moral and a legal um, sort of a stand to bring uh, different countries and their governments to account on behalf of the welfare of children. Um, uh, so yes, I believe it has been a very, very powerful instrument to uh, improve the conditions of children. Now, of course, uh, this operates at the interface of what happens to country budgets, what happens to the political situation in these countries, and the role of leadership in those countries as to how many of those rights are fulfilled. But certainly, in terms of being able to uh, bring up uh, legal and moral obligations, this is a consistent feature in regular reporting to the United Nations by different countries on the situation of the children in these countries. Uh, Now, um, I have personally seen how some of these reports have uh, been used to try and even prevent children from being enlisted in 
uh, in child uh, armies, you know, mm-hmm. in the Philippines, in many parts of Africa. Uh, we have used these uh, reports to alert the international community on uh, use of children as child soldiers, and it has really helped um, really the situation in many countries. So very, very powerful instrument. Um, and uh, I think that uh, it is just unfortunate at this time that in some senses, at some points, uh, there is, of course, a question of uh, uh, absolute uh, authority of the UN or relative authority or moral authority that you have in terms of bringing accountability to the official office holders in different countries. Um, but also the fact that uh, in many cases, these cannot be enforced because the situation is, situation is so complicated that uh, the governments are unable to uh, do anything about it. Thank you, Dr. Aleem. Thinking about the current conflict um, ongoing in, in Gaza, it, it becomes a, a little bit challenging to think about how the rights of children are being fulfilled in this situation when clearly they, they are not. Ultimately, where does the responsibility lie in your opinion, um, in respect of the rights of these children in Gaza being protected, um, and and in terms of accepting that responsibility, who who can make the change necessary um, to ensure that these children do have their rights respected? It's a long process uh, and sometimes very ineffective, as we have seen in par- in cases of uh, Security Council's paralysis on the current conflict. Um, you know, the reports of uh, the Child Rights uh, Convention go to Geneva, to the Human Rights Council, and they are presented. There are usually two parallel processes. One is the government report itself, and the second is uh, the civil society report on children that also accompanies that report. Uh, because in many cases, as you would know, governments try to hide some of their lack of responsibility or accountability in their official reports. So in that case, uh, many civil society organizations come together along with the UN and Mm. certainly with UNICEF and Save the Children Fund to produce a parallel report that also goes to the same mechanism. And then the government delegations are often questioned in the Human Rights Council on whether they have been able to meet their obligations. Now, as you know, um, as I said, the real problem is whether there is a mechanism to, uh, for instance, let's say the right to education uh, depends a lot on the availability of schools, on the budgetary allocations that are made to um, the education system in that country. Uh, would obviously depend on negotiations between um, several parties on how the budget is allocated. And therefore, I think there is a problem of uh, of these falling short because the country is unable to meet those obligations. And I guess in a, in a situation such as this, in a situation of of conflict, um, then the 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 challenge becomes even even greater. Um, I'd like to thank Dr. Aleem for his participation in in this morning's program. I know that he has to go now. Khalil, just bringing you in. Um, to 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 this, uh, clearly states parties in the wording of the the UNCRC have a responsibility to ensure that the children that they are charged with looking after have their rights fulfilled. Um, but in this situation, in a situation of conflict such as this, clearly there is also 
an onus of responsibility on all actors um, in a in a conflict to ensure that children's rights are are looked after. And your your thoughts on this, thinking about this from a from a legal perspective. Yeah, I mean, look, the practical point is, what does that protection look like? What is it that children could reasonably expect? And I think that there's lots of detail that's been provided in the Geneva Conventions, particularly the fourth one, which uh, addresses particularly the impact of conflict on civilians. And what's important for children is that there are safety zones, that there are hospitals. You know, there's been a significant amount of attacks on hospitals within the region at the moment. Uh, and that is unacceptable in my view. And I think that uh, establishing hospitals and safety zones for, for children is really important. Uh, food, clothing, uh, medication, water, uh, care for children who might have been separated from their families as a result of the of conflict, safe zones. Um, all of those are really important uh, ingredients for the protection of children. And that's because they are civilians. It's because they are not in a position to look after and care for themselves. And this is precisely why we have international humanitarian law, because it's not to necessarily prevent conflict, but to ensure that the impact of conflict is minimized on those who are least able to care for themselves. So, so these really are the areas of focus that I think that the international community needs to look at immediately. Thank you, Khalil. And, and you, know, you, you pointed towards a few, a few different things there. And I think that it's worth thinking about the situation in Gaza from a um, a longer perspective as well. Uh, it's it's very easy to take a an a historical view on on what is happening right now, and and without even getting into the politics of um, how the situation has escalated, purely looking at the situation for children in Gaza over the last few decades clearly they have not had their rights respected or fulfilled um so th- thinking thinking about the principles as laid out in in the the charter and thinking about this broadly in terms of um the rights of children so <coughs> one of the most important aspects is the right to life survival and development and aspects of development are related to both physical, psychological, and educational development. If, mm. if a child does not get a good education, doesn't live in an environment that allows them to thrive, express themselves, and be happy, then they will not develop into a uh, functioning human being, a functioning uh, participant in wider society. Um, and... Uh, stunting of growth due to a lack of food, a disease due to a lack of medical facilities or a lack of vaccination. All of these will have also have an impact on the development of children. And, and it is uh, all of that, I guess, which is, it, which is one big challenge for, for children living in Gaza or have been living in Gaza over, over the last few decades. 
um it, it and I, and i guess the the question that i'm trying to draw out is is where the international communities um responsibility lies in respect of children in gaza hmm so this is so what's happening now is not new hmm. and uh, over the course of the past at least even if you just say the last 10 years there have been repeated attacks on infrastructure well i mean i use the word attacks the israelis would not necessarily say that they were attacks they were they they would say that they are defending their position so if i if i remove that language and keep it neutral and say that you know there have been uh impacts on schools over the last 10 years which have been in the line of sight of the international community so for example mm. back in 2014 there was an israeli operation called operation protective edge and uh, my understanding is that 232 schools were uh, damaged and 29 were entirely destroyed um, each year there are scores of incidents education related incidents both in the west bank uh, and east jerusalem aside from those that happen in the gaza strip so there have been lots of incidents repeated incidents over the course of the last 10 years at least which have had a negative impact on educational institutions for palestinian children so uh, what that tells us is that the international community has not taken sufficient steps to try and prevent those sorts of incidents but this conflict now after october the 7th has really highlighted these issues and it has brought it to the uh, international media everybody uh, across the world most people across the world are aware of what's been happening and it should now trigger a renewed impetus on the international community to say that uh, educational institutions and all of those institutions that are focused on the development and health of children need to be offered special protection now given that so many have been destroyed uh, what so one might argue that actually protecting those institutions is probably less of an issue given that there aren't that many left and in those circumstances perhaps the international community should think very carefully about allowing children to uh, exit those uh, conflict zones establishing safe zones and then establishing new schools new hospitals new institutions for the health welfare and development of palestinian children thank you khalil and and i guess you know there there is a as you said without without getting into the politics of who is responsible for what in this in this situation there there is clearly a responsibility on the international community to ensure that children are protected and looked after i'd, li- I'd like to go into a little bit more detail on some of the aspects of this uh, and because it's an area that is particularly close to my to my own heart um both professionally and and personally to think about the plight of children who require um medical support and we 
sit in a country with even with even with the situation that we currently have with the NHS in terms of questions of uh, under resourcing and questions of a of a system that is um, uh, challenged by the by the amount of um, uh, by by the by by its capacity issues in a, in a in a country like Gaza or in Gaza we have the situation where children who require medical help are either unable to get those resources those facilities they don't have enough doctors or nurses and within the hospitals and facilities themselves they don't have enough supplies medication kit uh, this this is not a situation unique to Gaza. It is a situation that we see in many countries around the world. It's a situation that we see in much of the developing world, in much of sub-Saharan Africa as well. There's absolutely no question or doubt about that. The situation becomes uh, exceptionally acute for Gazan children right now because the conflict itself creates a health crisis for these children, both physically in terms of... Um, as we heard earlier, um, burns, broken bones, uh, damage to to limbs uh, in terms of infectious diseases and in terms of the psychological impact on on these children who may have lost many members of their own family and, and in many cases may have been orphaned as well. And there seems a particularly cruel... Um, and painful irony in all of this when uh, children are both um, damaged and um, uh, wounded as a result of the of the ongoing conflict but also cannot get access to the help that they need because the infrastructure itself is also being destroyed um, and it really feels like the the world is in a place right now where it has uh, an opportunity to really turn things around. Um, many, many countries in the world don't don't lack resources. What they lack is is political will, um, and the the question of being able to help those children who are most vulnerable um, is is one that comes really acutely to the fore. We heard about. Um, children who are newborn children requiring help in in newborn intensive care, unable to get the help that they need, and and we have heard reports from doctors on the ground with no no reason to to lie or to um, exaggerate the situation that they find themselves in, saying a lack of oxygen, a lack of resource and infrastructure has led directly to the deaths uh, of children in in this situation um go- going beyond the the painfulness of this all this it, it feels very much like Khalil if I'm I'm able to land on a question on this um it feels very much like that that this is one of the most important things that needs to be protected for children in this in this situation um both the access to and the protection of health facilities um, in order to protect their health and, and ongoing well-being. I mean, I think that's right. I, I don't think there's anything I can add to that in terms of you know the, the needs of children. But I think one thing I, I would add is 
we should also think about the needs of the mothers of children as well, which we haven't looked into. Uh, pregnant women, new mothers, mm. you know, um, malnutrition is a real issue. Uh, the, there has been a blockade on Gaza since 2007, um, and that has limited the supply of all essential items. It's become much more acute now. And so, you know, thinking about the children and also mothers of children, neonatal projects and uh, facilities which uh, mothers need is also another area of focus. You know, what I would say as you were speaking, I, I was thinking, you know, what would the what would the solution be? You and I and lots of other commentators across the world, you know, we talk about these things and we explain mm. the facts and the figures, but there's nothing that replaces a visualization or a, an actual experience of, of what everybody is going through and I, and I wonder uh, that it's important that I think the international community and, and particularly those influential nations send representatives to the territory, send them to the uh, rougher crossing and physically see the consequences of the war on Palestinians, on women and on children. Um, so that they can really understand the true impact and devastation that they are experiencing, not just as a result of this immediate conflict, but what's been happening over the course of many, many years. And I also think that they should visit Israel as well. I think that they should um, see the impact of the Hamas attacks as well and I think that's important for two reasons and one of them is so that we recognize that the killing of civilians on any side whether that is Palestinian children or whether that is Israeli children is uh, equally horrific and and they should be condemned universally and equally but it's also important I think for the international community to be able to see the difference in how the consequences of those attacks are handled. So in Israel, there is a much better infrastructure when people are injured or people are killed and they have access to hospitals, they have access to medication. But in Gaza, they do not. And I think having, uh, being able to physically see the differences between uh, the consequences of this conflict on, on two different people, two different sets of, uh, of groups, uh, is important. So, so I hope that maybe a delegation can be sent of uh, influential countries who would have the courage to physically look and see the differences between the way these things are handled and the impact and consequences on the peoples of both nations. Thank you, Khalil. And um, you know, we can, I guess, we can only watch and 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 pray and advocate and give our voice to these questions. And there's ab absolutely no doubt, as you said, that um, the responsibility falls to those individual nations who can get involved and should get involved. And one thinks perhaps uh, also of the Muslim-majority countries in, in that part of the world, in the Middle East, and what responsibility they have and 
and I think that's worth a reflection on the rights of children from a from an Islamic perspective. And Islam, the the rules of of engagement in war are very clear from that perspective. That Islam says that no woman or child should be harmed uh, in a situation of conflict or war between two countries. Um, that's not the only thing that Islam says on the rights of children, but it's a it's a good starting point for us to to think about the current situation and to think about um, the the situation that happened on the uh, the seventh of October and the attack by Hamas, and uh, th- there can be no excuse for the killing of innocent uh, individuals um, in in war, but es- but especially children, and children should be uh, uh, protected. Um, and as an Islamic uh, principle, that that really comes to the fore as as incredibly important. Um, and and Khalil, you know, when one thinks that you know, Muslim majority countries in in that part of the world should really be giving voice to this. Yes, I think they should. I think there are fifty three or fifty four Muslim countries, uh, and they should really unite together. I mean, there is there is some indication that they are beginning to speak with one voice. But I think that it's important that they come together almost as a league and speak entirely with one voice and demand that these hostilities are ceased and that a solution is found, a peaceful solution is found so that the Palestinians can live in peace and harmony and the Israelis can live in peace and harmony and that nobody experiences you know unnecessary harm or unnecessary violence and and both peoples can uh, flourish comfortably so the importance of uh, muslim countries particularly coming together and leading that is essential because many of those countries surround that region it is in their it is in their interest that peace can be found I mean, on, on occasion, you know, there is the, the argument that, well, there are religious differences between lots of these Muslim countries. But, but I think that for the, for the benefit of, of other Muslims, it's important that those religious differences are set aside and that the commonalities and the vast majority of beliefs between uh, different uh, Muslims and Muslim nations are the same, that those commonalities should be focused on. And uh, they should, you know, for the for the benefit of other Muslims, they should come together. I think that they have a, a responsibility to do that, and I'm very hopeful that they will take, you know, more steps in order to achieve that. Thank you, Khalil. And and reflecting a little bit more on Islamic injunctions around the protection of children, I think it's a important for us to get into a little bit of, of detail on this and to reflect on how um, they are reflected in the the United Nations Charter on the Rights of Children. Um, there is a very powerful verse of the Holy Quran 
um, which says, and do not kill your children for fear of poverty. We provide for them and for you. Indeed, their killing is ever a great sin. And this has been interpreted in a, in a couple of ways. And very sadly, at the, at the time that the Holy Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him, uh, came to uh, that part of the world in, in Arabia, the, the killing of, of children, especially young girls, was something that that happened either out of shame or out of out of um societal pressure but also um in respect of um abortion um and it's been interpreted to mean that that parents should should not seek to um have an abortion if the reason for that abortion is or the or the, the motivation for that abortion is because of a a fear or an anxiety that they may not be able to afford uh, to be able to look after after a child. And you have to be in a really dire situation for that to be the case. Um, but the right to, to life, as also set out in the UNCRC, is a, is an important principle in, in Islamic law as well, Khalil. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, and Islam actually sets out in a, a lot of detail the importance of looking after children as you say you know there's the right to life there's generally you know the right to physical and emotional well-being and the responsibility of one parents to try and uh, ensure that they uh, educate children so that they are able to make a meaningful contribution to society uh, to their faith you know and to the uh, for the welfare and benefit of the country that they live in. And so, you know, Islam sets out obligations all the way from, from the time that children are, are born through to education, uh, even guiding on how they should have relationships, on uh, marriages, on inheritance. And at the center of all of that are the parents. And parents are so important within Islam, the mother is so important within Islam that actually there is a, uh, a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, that paradise lies under the feet of the mother. So uh, it's very important that parents don't just take responsibility for their children, but also children uh, honour their parents. And, and I think that it's also essential that we take responsibility not just for our own children, but that actually we exercise a care and concern for the children of others because children are very much our uh, future and nations are built on the basis of children who, having educated themselves, provide a meaningful contribution to society. So Islam is very much focused on uh, the importance of upbringing of children uh, they're very much a trust that we have, which Allah has given us, and it's important that we treat that trust with real seriousness. Thank you, Khalil. And really, really important um, reflection on those Islamic principles of of a of a trust. Uh, one other aspect of um, uh, Islamic law in respect of children is. Uh, a saying of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who said, "Be fair and just in your treatment of children." It's, and it feels like a, a a fairly 
um, uh, innocuous phrase in some ways, but actually a, a profoundly deep in meaning because as the United Nations Charter on, on the Rights of Children sets out, that children should be treated fairly, should not be discriminated against. And, and in the context in which the words of the prophet were, were being said, be fair and just in your treatment of children, it, it was a situation where um, young girls were not treated the same way as young boys, where orphan children were not treated the same as those children in society who had parents to advocate for them. Society must advocate for all children in, in all situations, and the words of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, ring very, very strongly in that respect, especially as we see the current situation um, unfolding as it as it does in Gaza. Um, and uh, and as, a, as a principle of law, be fair and just, uh, in the treatment of your of your children um feels like a, a very profound statement Khalil. Uh, i think we m- we may have lost Khalil Yusuf there um no i think you i think you do have me sorry uh, um you're absolutely right and i think it's a really difficult situation at the moment for parents, particularly in Gaza, because as much as they intend to look after and protect their children, they're really not in a position to do that. And I think I would probably go back to say that the you know the safeguarding of children in this conflict is the responsibility of everybody. The international community really does need to take a stand. It's important that Palestinian children as well as Israeli children continue to maintain the right to life, the right to development, the right to a a family life, the right to education, you know, the right to food. All of these things are extremely important. And I think one area which Palestinian children particularly need to, uh, or they should be focused particularly for Palestinian children is children who are refugees, children who have lost their parents, you know, who are now alone. Uh, I don't know what the system is to try and address their needs, but that also needs to be looked at. I have no idea how how that is being addressed in the current conflict. So, you know, all of these things are tremendously important. And I think, you know, speed, time is of the essence. And it's important that the international community works very, very hard to ensure that uh, the harm that is being caused on a minute-by-minute basis to children in that area is uh, very, very quickly stemmed. Thank you, Khalil. And um, that is, really brings us close to the end of the first hour um, of our programme. And the ongoing conflict in, in Gaza <clears throat> uh, between Hamas and Israel is unfolding in front of our eyes we see the the pain of of those individual families and children uh, as a result of the bombardment the violence the ongoing and uh, unrelenting um uh consequences of uh of war of bombs being dropped of of um of bullets being fired and uh, and as a community we have to stand up i think that much is is clear we have to make our voices heard and we have to stand against injustice um and especially against injustice wrought on on 
innocent individuals and no group could be more innocent than than children in this situation um and uh so in in conclusion the situation that we find ourselves in is that we uh, ourselves individually have have very little in the way of power to try and um change this situation but we can give voice to it we can stand on the platforms available to us um and speak against it we can ask our politicians to take action um and uh, there is no question at all in respect of that that the Ahmadiyya Muslim community also stands very much on the side of calling for a ceasefire calling for um the bombardment to stop calling for this war to stop um and uh, the the voices for peace which is a campaign started by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community um is is there to to give voice to that for individuals who who may not otherwise uh, find that they have a they have a voice or they have any capacity to be able to speak um in in um uh, in pain speech for those individual uh uh people who are who are affected by this ongoing conflict and and it doesn't matter what your religious background may be what your um personal affiliation may be national or or otherwise um voices p- for peace is something that um hopefully uh, each of us can get behind in the idea that that peace is the only ultimate outcome that that makes sense in this in this situation so i'll just end the first hour of the program by thanking khalil yusuf and dr alim for joining me today um thank you khalil for your participation in today's program jazakallah i'm very grateful you know it's uh, very unfortunate that uh, we're in a position to have to talk about such a a heartbreaking um story but i th- i think it is really important that we focus on this voices for peace campaign that we deescalate this conflict and and try and establish peace in the region uh, it has been this conflict has been going on far too long thank you very much khalil and we're coming up to the news now and uh, join us again after the news You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu alaikum welcome back to Weekend World on the Voice of Islam. Uh, my name is Samad Khan and we just heard the uh, two minutes silence and the playing of the last post for Remembrance Sunday um a day dedicated to remembering those who uh, served uh, and died um in uh, world wars um especially those from from the UK who did so but uh, i think it's also worth remembering that at the time of both world wars uh, the united kingdom britain was part of a much greater empire and many hundreds of thousands from that empire sacrificed their lives in service during both world war 1 and world war 2 and today we remember them and uh, remember all of the victims of war uh, and as we've spoken about in the first hour of the of the program remember those innocent victims of war especially children affected by conflicts all around the world not just in gaza um whether it's ukraine or sudan or um syria and ongoing conflicts but most acutely right now 
um, in Gaza with one child being killed every 10 minutes in the ongoing war. Um, we pray for them and we remember them and we give voice to uh, uh, their rights uh, and the importance of protecting those rights and, and ultimately, uh, therefore, the importance of um, a ceasefire in this ongoing conflict. Uh, we're coming up to the end of the recorded uh, the, the live part of our program and now we are going to listen to some uh, pre-recorded pieces from our colleagues at Rational Religion and uh, the reading of a book chapter. So thank you for staying tuned and listening to Weekend World on The Voice of Islam and join us again soon. This is the second part in a narration of the book A Call to Faith by Hazrat Mirza Bashiruddin Mahmoud Ahmed. A Call to Faith, Part 2 Attacks Against the Holy Prophet, Peace Be Upon Him The blessed being of the Holy Prophet, Peace Be Upon Him, was so determined in his opposition to disbelief that anyone who possesses a hint of faithlessness in their heart harbours enmity against him. Such people consider it their duty to attack his pure being, for they reckon his success amounts to their downfall, and that his life brings about their death. Hence, no other prophet has been slandered to the same degree as the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has, whether they are Arab, Syrian, Indian or Persian. As I have mentioned, the enemies of Islam are compelled to malign its founder because Islam shatters their deception and fraud. After all, Everyone cherishes their own life. More astonishing is the case of those who claim to love Islam, profess apparent faith in the Holy Quran, invoke peace and blessings on the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and yet do not hold back from attacking his character. They propagate such doctrines which dishonour the blessed personage of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and thereby turn the hearts of people away from his love. Time and again, some among them proclaim Jesus is still alive and resides in the fourth heaven with the same physical body, and one day he will descend from there and bring the people under his rule. Unfortunately, they fail to comprehend this is an insult to that prophet to whose beneficence they owe everything, whom God Almighty ordained the greatest of all humanity, and whose spiritual power far exceeds that of the angels and all other human beings. They seek to confer higher rank and station on an individual who, 
if he had lived in the time of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad, peace be upon him, would have prided himself on entering his servitude. It is an inexorable truth that no one has suffered more than the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, for the sake of God Almighty's religion. For thirteen years in Mecca, he endured such agony and torment that had it been inflicted on any other person, it would have broken them within a year. His loyal and devoted followers also persevered in the face of unbearable horrors. Conversely, the sacrifices made by the Messiah and his disciples cannot begin to compare with those of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. As great as they may be in their own right, they hold no value against the sacrifices made by the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him. First, the ministry of the Messiah is reported to have lasted for three years. And even during this brief period, the injustices his opponents inflicted on him were limited to a few instances of verbal abuse and derision. Whereas, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, spent the same length of time under siege in a confined valley. He and his followers were deprived of food and water, and trade with them was made punishable. Their suffering was so acute, the Prophet's wife, Hazrat Khadija, may Allah be pleased with her, fell ill and died as a result. His companions would narrate that at times due to a shortage of food, they would survive by eating leaves, and in consequence, their excrement would resemble that of goats. The lives of the Prophet, peace be upon him, and his followers were attacked on numerous occasions. They were stoned, strangulated, pelted with filth. There was no agony which they did not suffer. But through it all, Allah the Exalted continually instructed them to have patience, as had the messengers of strong determination, and be steadfast in resisting your enemies. Is it not strange that despite knowledge of this, those who call themselves Muslims and scholars believe when the Messiah was to be crucified, Allah the Exalted gave his likeness to another man and placed him in the hands of the Jews while raising the actual Messiah to heaven? If this were true, Christians would be justified in the belief their guide is greater than the Prophet of Islam, peace be upon him on the basis that he underwent 13 years of hardship in Mecca and five more in Medina. Allah the Exalted made him endure these agonies without coming to his help, whereas the moment Jesus' enemies sought to harm him, God Almighty raised him to the fourth heaven and did not tolerate his torment for an instant. I call on those who grieve for the plight of Islam, and who claim to love the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad, peace be upon him, and ask whether you have given thought to the damage such scholars have inflicted on Islam, and how they have dishonoured the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, 
by raising the Messiah to heaven. Have you ever considered that the doctrine of the Messiah surviving in heaven for so many years, as advanced by these scholars, only strengthens the hand of Christianity? Quite clearly an individual raised to heaven and kept alive, there by Allah the Exalted, is perforce more lofty than anyone who is allowed to live an average age, and then caused to die by divine will. Moreover, if it were accepted that not only was the Messiah still alive, but that he brought the dead to life as is commonly believed by the Muslims of today, then God forbid, no doubt can remain, the Messiah is greater than the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Does the Holy Quran, the final book of God Almighty, support this belief? Certainly not. The Holy Quran categorically rejects this and says in the clearest terms, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is the chief of all prophets. All the messengers took an oath that if he were raised in their age, they would bring faith in him and extend him their help and support. How is it possible to ignore a sovereign and adorn one of lesser rank in regal dress? Allah the Exalted is not unjust. If the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, truly is the chief of all prophets, and I swear by God, in whose hand is my life, surely cursed are those who give false testimony in his name. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is certainly the chief of all prophets and messengers, then no one who has previously lived, and no one who will ever be born, can rise to his rank. All others are subservient to him, and the nearness to God Almighty enjoyed by him, and the jealousy God Almighty showed for him, has not been accorded to anyone else, nor has God Almighty ever shown such regard for another. Who was the Messiah? He was but one in a long line of prophets, from the Mosaic dispensation, whereas the rank of the Messenger of Allah, Muhammad, peace be upon him, was such that all of the Mosaic prophets combined could not attain it. Thus, how is it possible God Almighty raised the Messiah to heaven in order to protect him from the onslaughts of his enemies and left the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, alone for people to pelt him with rocks until he was wounded and bleeding, or to stone him and break his blessed teeth and not cease until he fell unconscious as in the battle of Uhud. I swear by God, this could not have happened. If God Almighty were to raise anyone to heaven, it would have been the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. And if God had willed to keep anyone alive for centuries, it would surely again have been him. Foolish are those who believe God Almighty raised the Messiah to heaven, where he is alive to this day. This creed not only goes against the Holy Quran, it bolsters Christianity. Moreover, it is an insult not only to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, but also to God Almighty, as it implies, God forbid, that he is unjust, for the one who deserved the best of his bounties 
was dealt with unfairly, and the one who deserved lesser bounties was given the best of them. It further suggests, God forbid, that God Almighty was helpless to do anything in this world, and therefore raised the Messiah to heaven in order to save him. If Muslims would only reflect, they would recognise this belief of the Messiah being raised to heaven was foolishly invented by Christians on account of the fact it clearly says in their interpolated scripture the kingdom of God does not hold sway on the earth. So to this day, Christians beseech God to establish his kingdom in the world just as he has in heaven. But in Islam, such doctrines are considered disbelief. The Quran clearly says, to Allah belongs the kingdom of the heavens and the earth. Christians have little option but to accept God Almighty raise the Messiah to heaven, for according to their beliefs, the kingdom of God is not established on the earth. Therefore, he was unable to protect the Messiah in this world. But what of the Muslims? What caused them to imitate Christians and raise the Messiah to heaven without good cause? The kingdom of their God is established in heaven and earth. What need was there for him to raise his prophet to heaven from fear of the Jews? He could have protected him and brought destruction on his enemies in this very world. No matter how you look at it, the belief the Messiah is alive in heaven is an affront to God Almighty and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Christians have taken advantage of these circumstances and hundreds of thousands of Muslims have faltered due to this creed and entered the fold of Christianity as a result. There is still time for the Muslims to ponder and repent from this nonsensical and un-Islamic tenet and convince others from among them to do the same. Otherwise, to insult the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, is no minor offence. They should know that one day they will entrust their lives to the custody of God Almighty rather than their clerics. Therefore, while there is still time, the Muslims should unite as one and drive this foul creed which insults the Prophet, peace be upon him, from their hearts and thereby loosen from themselves the grip of Christianity. Let the Messiah die, for in his death is the death of Christianity and the life of Islam. Is there a fervent soul out there who would bring death to the Messiah and revitalize Islam? Surely, those who would do this from a religious zeal rather than from a rationalist approach would earn the mercy of God Almighty and he would enable them to tread on his chosen paths. With humility, Mirza Mahmud Ahmed, Imam of the Ahmadiyya community, Qadian. <laughs> World War III, something that is necessarily, understandably, concerning a lot of people right now.
with good reason. We have the first uh, war on European soil in so many decades. One of the parties is, you know, a major nuclear superpower, you know, one of the two major nuclear superpowers in the world, Russia. Yeah. And a lot of people are writing about, are we in World War Three? Is it going to go and further develop as the months roll on? Uh, very understandable concerns. But what I find curious as an Ahmadi Muslim is that the caliph of our community, his name's His Holiness Mirza Masrur Ahmad, who's been the caliph for what, 19 years now, has, especially in the last decade, been warning that we are building up to a world war, that we are building into uh, blocks which are splintering and are becoming more hostile to one another. Yeah. Uh, and now people are seeing the fruits of this, but he's gone around the world, you know, talking about this to world leaders for many years. And we have an article on this which was recently released, written by Demir Musa Rafi, the uh, editor of the Rational Religion blog. Uh, it's an excellent article. I just thought we'd go through some of the highlights of it. Um, but before we do that, let's have a look at a video of His Holiness Mirza Musur Ahmed so people know kind of who he is, get a, get a, get a taste of uh, some of the things that he's done over the years. Persecuted for your beliefs, jailed for your faith, and exiled from your homeland, but you refuse to turn to bitterness or vengeance. Instead, His Holiness has emerged as a leader of wisdom and compassion, a champion of nonviolence among nations. No society can truly succeed unless it guarantees the rights of all of its peoples, including religious minorities. Whether they're Ahmadiyya, Muslims in Pakistan, or Baha'i in Iran, or Coptic Christians in Egypt. I would like very much to confirm my support for the work that His Holiness and the Ahmadi Muslim community are doing, particularly in London. Even I didn't know when I was elected, then my name even will be proposed. The election is the same as the Pope is elected, but without smoke. I know you are a regular uh, visitor and speaker to parliaments and assemblies around the world, whether it's the US Congress or the, or the European Parliament. Let it be clear that I am not speaking in support or favor of any particular individual country. What I wish to say is that all forms of cruelty, wherever they exist, must be eradicated and stopped regardless of whether they are perpetrated by the people of Palestine, the people of Israel, or the people of any other country. In this we are allied with His Holiness, a courageous champion of religious freedom and of peace. I'm very glad that our movement, yours, will do something to correct this image. Islam means peace. I should thank Your Holiness for your highly enlightened sermon, not only for the Ahmadis, but I would say for all mankind. Love for all and hatred for none. And this message not only for Muslims, but for everybody. You are a man, though of humble beginnings, your leadership has made you a figure of global prominence. And you have become a guide for millions of Muslims worldwide. I've been there. Really? Yeah, where that happened. That courtyard.
Okay, so that was uh, a bit of an introduction to him. Uh, that was, I think, released a, a few years ago now, but and he's gone on to do many more talks of the same nature. Uh, so let's have a look at some things he said. But first, uh, we have uh, just some pictures. So the this is when he did his address in Japan. Um, and the next one is when he went to the to UNESCO. Um, so he's been kind of all over the world doing these these kinds of talks. American Parliament, uh, British Parliament. American Senate. Yeah, American Senate, <laughs> uh, British Parliament, uh, New Zealand Parliament. Canadian um, Parliament. EU Parliament. Germany military headquarters. Yeah. So uh, let's have a look at the first quote. So this is from 2013. And in a peace symposium, he was speaking about the economic hardships of Europeans. So and the, the peace symposium in itself was quite interesting. Yeah. Why don't you tell us about so that? So the peace symposium was a... Um, a yearly event that he commenced um, where he as a keynote speaker would warn the public and also politicians, mm-hmm. uh, prominent politicians such as Theresa May before she came into office as Prime Minister and Boris Johnson before he came into office as Prime Minister, um, that the world was moving towards uh, World War Three. That was the main thrust of the peace symposiums. Explicitly. Yeah. Yeah, it was explicit. Um, there was no doubt about it. Yeah. And you see the same politicians like Ed Davey, for example, who's a close friend of the Ahmadiyya community, Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Mm. And he'd come and, and year on year and he'd listen. He would appreciate very much what was being said. But it was, I think sometimes they thought to themselves potentially, <laughs> well, this message isn't changing. Yeah. Um, but there was no need for it to change. It was the message of the time. And now we're seeing um, that absolutely he was 100% correct. And do you remember what Ed Davey said a few years ago? Yeah, uh, in one of his talks, he thought, you know, he said, I, I thought, you know, maybe you're a bit pessimistic, basically, about the outlook of the world. And I realized you were completely right. Really? Yeah, yeah he said that in one of, um, I think maybe it was at Ajasa or a peace symposium. Oh, really? Um, and because I, I think this was maybe 2018, 19, when he, mm. he saw that things were forming in this way. Yeah. That blocks were forming and yeah. that uh, hostilities were increasing. Yeah. So let's track how this happened. Uh, at least some of the highlights of some of his speeches over the years. So the first one is from a peace symposium speech delivered in 2013. And he was speaking to the economic hardship of the Europeans. And he said, we should not sit here and only be concerned at the prospect of becoming involved in wars that are taking place in Asia. But we should also be extremely concerned about the problems on our own doorsteps. If we look at Europe's own financial crisis and its long-term effects, we see that it is causing restlessness to spread within Europe's population, and this anxiety is increasing at great speed. If not handled properly, the results of such frustrations and desperation will prove to be catastrophic. And to me, he's talking at, uh, A, the economic problems since 2008, which worsened over the next few years um, in Europe to a degree uh, in particular, um, and how economic frustrations can turn into nationalism, they can turn into more kind of far-right sentiments, and society will turn inward against itself yeah um and around this time this is when the migrant crisis was starting to pick up because this is also when when the syrian war was starting to really pick up um so he was talking about how these things can develop over time and in the next uh in the next one we see that in 2013 2013 syria war is going on ukraine is deciding between eu and the russia deal and he said in a in a reception held in los angeles the direction of the world is moving. The direction the world is moving in suggests that the dark shadow of war is being cast over a very large part of the globe. If war breaks out, then countless innocent women, children, and elderly people will all die. The destruction will be greater than what was witnessed in the previous two world wars. And around this time, I believe it was uh, 2013. The next photo will be his address to Parliament, uh, and the next one will be a slightly later address in uh, the Netherlands. 
Um, and in that parliament address, you'll see in the next slide, we have uh, this very, very uh, prescient uh, quote where he says, the world has become a global village and so a lack of mutual respect and a failure to join together to promote peace will not only harm the local area, city or country, but in fact will ultimately lead to the destruction of the entire world. We are all well aware of the horrific devastation caused by the last two world wars due to the acts of certain countries. The signs are that another world war is on the horizon. If a world war breaks out, the Western world will also be deeply affected by its far-reaching and devastating consequences. So, I mean, can you, you know, um, can you speak to that, especially that first half where he talks about the world's become a global village? And that's one of the themes. He, he always uses that phrase, a global village, and he talks about that. Mm. What does that kind of mean to you? And what, what did you take from this, maybe at the time and also now? At the time, I probably didn't take much from it <laughs> because you don't, in a sense. Uh, the, the Statements like this, they're valued um, retrospectively. more, in yeah. fact, retrospectively once everybody's... Once for the thickos like me, and this becomes obvious what the <laughs> issue is. Um, but I think the key point here is that you... It's exactly what he says, which is that uh, failure of peace at a local level, you might think it's a local problem, hmm. but it actually has far-reaching consequences for regions and then for nations and then internationally. Yeah. And that's what we've seen. Ukraine and the devastation in Ukraine and between Russia and Ukraine not just since February 2022, but actually going back to the Donbass region from 2014 onwards yeah. uh, with the Maidan coup and things like that. People may have just thought that was a harmless coup kind of thing. It was just a coup in an Eastern yeah. European country and blah, blah, blah. But actually... Or a revolution, as, or a as revolution. many people deem it. Yes, or a revolution. Um, some say, you know, externally sponsored revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, that, oh, well, that's just a kind of local event. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't just a local event. It had significant effect on the relationships between the EU and the Russia nato and russia and that necessarily because of the alliances that are in place Mm. that draws in a whole host of other countries and of course crimea and of course crimea yeah Yeah. so um that's one thing i think the other thing that comes out of this particular statement of his is that he specifically talks about world war Mm -hmm. right he extrapolates local events going up to world war Mm-hmm. And even now, there are some people who still think that this is actually a bit far-fetched. Yeah. Even with the Russian-Ukraine crisis, they're a bit like, oh, well, we don't think it's going to go that far. So it's still a local thing. Yeah. Uh, but they are, still haven't comprehended the prescient nature of this particular statement. It's a very prescient statement because he sees by the light of God. Mm-hmm. Um, because this is a person who has a very intimate and close relationship with God. He is, as we believe, the Khalifa of the Messiah. Mm. He's the representative of the Prophet sent for this age mm-hmm. uh, to represent the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, ultimately. Yeah. Um, so this is, in actual fact, uh, the statement of an individual who is guided by God. Mm. And that's the, uh, you know, that's the reason it's such a prescient uh, statement, which at the time people didn't appreciate uh, mm. for its depth and prescient nature. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, let's have a look at the next one. So this is 2015. This is when the Syria war has really hotted up, when uh, Ukraine has had the uh, Maidan has happened, yeah. and they now are in a war with the separatists in um, Donbass. And uh, this is what he says in that National Peace Symposium. He says, the world is being consumed by various issues that are leading to frustration and resentment, which in turn are undermining peace. For example, the effects of the financial crisis continue to be felt in much of the world. Then there is a conflict in Ukraine and the global arms race. These are all threats to world peace that are not linked to Islam, but rather have developed as a result of an unquenchable thirst for power, influence and resources. So first he's talking about the financial crisis and how those effects continue to be uh, felt. And then he talks about 
Ukraine global arms race, and then he talks about the root causes of that. So, is there anywhere you want to begin when we when we have a look at have a look at this statement? Um, well, I think the important piece that comes out of this in particular is um, two things: is the pairing of the Ukraine and the global arms race. Yeah, so yeah. I think you were on the same page as me there. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, what happened between twenty fourteen to twenty twenty two? Well, I mean, we can go even further back, which is in 2002, the Americans came out of the Anti-Ballistic Missiles um, Treaty, yeah. one of the major nuclear treaties. Um, and they said to Russia, uh, we're going to build up our system, but don't worry, it's not against you. <laughs> Russia said, okay. And they eventually basically said, well, we'll do the same thing. <laughs> um, and uh, around this time, this was post-Crimea, when Russia annexed Crimea, these tensions were in Ukraine. And um, you have... Uh, a build-up of nuclear weapons. You have a build-up of the systems to deliver nuclear weapons. And in fact, by 2018, Putin does a speech where he basically says we have not only nuclear parity, but he claimed he has essentially nuclear supremacy. Yeah, with the hypersonic missiles. Yeah. So um, this is the time of the global arms race uh, of nuclear and otherwise. And uh, it was very much, you know, U- Ukraine, as we now see, has always been, you know, the modern center of a lot of this conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he goes on to talk about the threats to world peace that are not linked to Islam, because this is a time, 2015 especially, terrorist yes, attacks, yes. you know, migrant crisis, a lot of anti-Muslim sentiment. And, you know, I think I understand that this speech, a lot of it was talking about, you know, there are world problems which aren't due to Islam. There are deeper issues here. Yeah. Um, and he says this is a result of an unquenchable thirst for power, influence and resources. I think that's really imp- interesting because uh, this is talking about the root human values that lead to wars, that lead to conflicts. Um, and the injustices that breed uh, a lot of the resentment that comes out. So, I mean, even kind of very historically, this is going kind of almost ancient history, but part of the reason why a lot of the Ukrainians, um, especially in the West, have such a negative view of Russia is because of their colonialism under Stalin, Stalin famines that were caused by, um, by Soviet Russia, and a lot of the injustices there, which do propagate through generations. Now, you know, that may lead to their own injustices, uh, as time goes on. Mm. But, you know, these things have consequences. And that itself, you know, Soviet Russia was a result of, um, ultimately, it was a justification for the same human values of greed, wanting power. They claimed it was in the name of communism as some kind of greater uh, revolution for the working class and ended up repressing the working class, both in their freedom of thought and ultimately in their financial freedom, more than the catalyst whom they hated so much. Yeah. So uh, this is what came out of that one block. And then, of course, you know, we've all been witness to what's happened with the capitalist block and the injustices that they've um, perpetrated. And also that at the, at the heart of it, there is this kind of insatiable greed. Yeah. You know, these countries have gone around the world plundering resources, <clears throat> deposing governments, destroying whole nations, yeah. ultimately so that they can what, prop up their currencies and they can extract resources. They can have markets for their own commodities, basically. Yeah, and, and ultimately for the elite, it's so that they feel that they're in power, I think. They feel yeah. that they have, you know, this is where they deserve to be and they have to maintain that at any cost mm-hmm. without any thought of, you know, who are the victims that are suffering and maybe we should seek to reduce what we have for the sake of justice. So these are some of the things that he's talking about here. Yeah. Um, and which ultimately continue to be in operation and have led to to where we are today. So the other thing that comes out of this particular pairing is that Ukraine and the globals, global arms race mm-hmm. is that um, when the Maidan revolution happened, mm. you had the separation of Donetsk and Lugansk mm. regions who said that, well, hold on, we didn't elect these new people. Yeah. When that happened, you then had the Ukrainian army fighting against the republics, the breakaway republics, um, and you had the beginning of this war 
from 2014 onwards. And they had the, the attempts at peace treaties, Minsk 1 and Minsk 2, in I think it was 2014 and then 20, early 2015, both failed. Um, and then between 2016 and 2022, you've had an ongoing war which just never made it onto our media, mm. basically. And the reason that's tied to Ukraine and the global arms race is because, you know, the West funded the United, Ukrainian army, you know, to the teeth of yeah. that war. Uh, and they no doubt saw that particular theater of conflict as an opportunity to sell them weapons, mm. to make money in their corporations and their military corporations, you know, to get big bouncing, you know, bonuses that year mm. from, you know, bumper, bumper crops um, in terms of their shareholder yields and things, you know, and that kind of shows how um, the economic situation of the world ties very, you know, neatly in a way into local conflicts and exacerbates them. Because actually what needed to happen was not the funding of the wall. What mm. actually needed to happen was for people to help bring them to the negotiating table mm-hmm. again and again and again. But it's sad that actually the last negotiation that happened was in 2015, you know, at the time of this particular speech. And since then, for six, seven years, there's been no negotiations, which actually no actual treaties that have sat down to actually mm. happen proper before a full-scale invasion. Mm. So uh, a few months later, he did it again. In uh, he spoke about these things again in a speech in Tokyo in November 2015. He said, "We are living in extremely precarious and dangerous times, in which the state of the world is a cause of huge concern. Conflict and disorder are consuming the world and threatening international peace and security in Eastern Europe. Hostilities between Russia and Ukraine and other European countries are continuing to flare." So this is talking about, as you said. The, the war in the Donbass is is ongoing. And actually, by November 2015, it was largely off Western screens. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was certainly on Russian screens and obviously in Ukraine. Yeah. But it's largely off off Russian screens. But this was, you know, something which was continuing to um, to, to burn uh, in, in eastern Ukraine. Mm. And as we'll see on the next slide, he, he wrote this book around this time, or he published this book, which was a collection of so many of his speeches from which these extracts are taken, yeah. called World Crisis and the Pathway to Peace. So as you can see, very arresting image on the top. Yeah. Um, but it's basically about nuclear war and how we need to try and avoid nuclear war. Um, and he talks about the ec- global economic crisis continues to manifest newer and graver dangers almost every week and how this, this period is similar to World War II. And in this uh, book, he had a series of letters that he wrote to all the world's, the, the major world leaders of the, of the developed so countries. So speeches and letters he'd sent to world leaders warning <laughs> Absolutely. Them. Not just developed uh, countries, but actually often um, less Re- developed countries as and well. And also religious leaders, other religious yeah, leaders like as well. Yeah, and like the Pope as, as well, wasn't it? And yeah. Some, of the, some other religious leaders, I think. Um, so this is a very, very interesting letter. This was to uh, Obama in 2012. Do you want to read it? Yeah, so my request to you and indeed to all world leaders is that instead of using force to suppress other nations, use diplomacy, dialogue and wisdom. The major powers of the world, such as the United States, should play their role towards establishing peace. They should not use the acts of smaller countries as a pretext to disturb world harmony. Currently, nuclear arms are not only possessed by the United States and other major powers, rather even relatively smaller countries now possess such weapons of mass destruction where those who are in power are often trigger-happy leaders who act without thought or consideration. Thus, it is my humble request to you to strive to your utmost to prevent the major and minor powers from erupting into a third world war. There should be no doubt in our minds that if we fail in this task, then the effects and aftermath of such a war will not be limited to only the poor countries of Asia, Europe and the Americas. Rather, our future generations will have to bear the horrific consequences of our actions and children everywhere in the world will be born disabled or deformed. They will never forgive their elders who led the world to a global catastrophe. Mm. That is an arresting statement as well. Yeah, absolutely. That was uh, that was actually back in, in 2012. Wow. Um, and just when Syria was hotting up. 
uh, pre-Ukraine. Yes. Uh, Interesting, Obama actually withheld arms to Ukraine. Um, oh, did he? Yeah, he did. He uh, he he withheld uh, arms towards the end of I think towards the end of his pre- uh, president the second term or mid middle to end of it. Mm. Uh, but Trump Trump uh, okayed them after heavy pressure with Russia getting everything else that was going on. Oh, really? So yeah, I mean it's uh, it's it's you know this is a, an arresting statement as you said. Um, but unfortunately, the 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 ultimate march, geopolitical march, continued virtually the same. Weapons, nuclear weapons, continued to to build up, and, and as time went the, on, and the withdrawal from the uh, the INF treaty, the INF treaty, yeah. So uh, that happened a few years later as well. So um, these warnings were there, and these letters were there, and these speeches were there. Intermediate range nuclear forces treaty, yeah. In 2019, yeah. that happened. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, one of the uh, one of the later sad developments, and. In the next slide, we'll see the letter to Prime Minister David Cameron. He wrote, We observe that the situation in the world today is similar to the situation in 1932, both economically and politically. There are many other similarities and parallels which, when combined together, form the same image today that was witnessed just prior to the outbreak of the Second World War. If these sparks ever truly ignite, we will witness the terrifying scenario of a Third World War. And the uh, match has been struck, uh, as, as we see now. Uh, and this is such an interesting statement. Early 1930s, yeah, you know, economic problems Very coming up. Yeah, I mean, what was that seven years to uh, to, um, to, to 1939? And uh, yeah, around the same time periods. Now we have we have seen that things have yes. deteriorated. And what are the kinds of things that he's talking about here? I mean, there was the economic situation mm. post recession, a lot of disenfranchisement. The West has got around it by just printing endless money, mm. and uh, no surprise now we're seeing more and more inflation finally catching up with us. Mm. Um, we uh, we saw that hostilities were increasing, the blocks were forming, um, nuclear treaties were being abandoned, nuclear arms were increasing. You know, within a few years, Syria had both Russia and America working on opposite sides. Yeah. America once uh, actually killed many, many Russian soldiers mm. uh, in a in a particular incident, which Putin chose not to escalate and not to retaliate. Mm. Um, so, you know, the... The, the, the stage is being set. stage is being set, um, but in around 2012, this is uh, particularly prescient. Um, it was, because at this time, <coughs> in fact, there was a real detente between America and, and Russia, actually. Mm. You know, yeah. between Obama and Putin, and it was thought to be a kind of thawing of the Cold War attitudes mm. towards Russia and the West. But, you know, I think I think ultimately, you know, looking back at least, America have been, you know, they had Afghanistan, Iraq, and just Libya just then. And that was a, a big breaking point between America and Russia, because yeah. uh, Russia at least claimed, and Putin claimed, that they'd been lied to. They had got the um, UN Security Council vote by means of saying that they wouldn't try and do regime change in Libya. That'd be more of a humanitarian mission. And then that that you know didn't happen, and uh, and it was regime change. Yeah. So Putin uh, and Russia, the Russians have often cited that as one of the major incidents, mm. uh, and that was just 2011, wasn't it? Yeah. So that was kind of at the beginning of. of and then the, Syria the was the big break. split in 2015, 2016. Yeah. yeah. You know when Russia effectively stepped up against uh, proxy forces of the United States. Yeah. Uh, in in support of Bashar al-Assad. Yeah. And that very squarely then put him in the in the crosshairs mm. uh, of the United States. I think. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, so many letters to so many leaders, as we'll see. Um, and after, and this was actually in the next slide. He he wrote another series of letters um, in after at the beginning of COVID or around you know around the first wave around yeah, the summer twenty twenty. Yeah. So this is uh, a letter that he sent to the Prime Minister of Ghana. He said, with the 
When we examine the financial impact of the coronavirus, it is clearly apparent that it is causing immense damage to economies across the world, including those of the most powerful countries on earth. History tells us that the worst of mankind is often witnessed when economies collapse and the wealth and power of a nation is threatened. Often selfishness and greed prevail over justice and fairness, and nations seek to usurp the rights of other countries to save themselves. And in this way, devastating wars and bloody conflicts have often been ignited by economic forces. A glance at history makes it clear that wars are often sparked by economic pressures and frustrations as nations seek to unjustly fulfill their vested interests through warfare and violence. If and when a third world war breaks out, it cannot be assumed that Africa will not be drawn into the conflict because the modern world has come to resemble a global village in which each nation and continent is now more connected than ever before. So uh, just tell me one or two things that jump out of you from that. Um, I think, again, it's the emphasis on the the economic situation Mm. spiraling into uh, military uh, escalation. Because what happens is, I guess, with economic events is that it debilitates nations which were previously top dogs. Mm. And they seek to then maintain their top dog position when other contenders come into the field to try and exploit their economic weaknesses yeah. uh, with military solutions because that's all that's open to them. Right. And that's, I think, what happens. Um, you often also get, in in the case of our current issue, you've got a massive amount of money printing that's happened, a third of all dollars in circulation in the last few years. Mm. So the consequence ultimately will be, um, you know, where's all that money slushing around? It's slushing around in in a lot of co- American corporations and that money has to find new commodities and new markets mm. to soak up. Otherwise, you're going to get rampant inflation back, back home, yeah. which is already happening. Yeah. Uh, and one of the major ways to do that is effectively to open up new whole nations um, to uh, corporations, um, which can then sell their goods to those particular uh, markets. Mm. So the introduction of, the e- of Ukraine you know, into the EU or the, the hope to get Ukraine into the EU... Um, could be seen as uh, as a as a as a move for that. It's a very large country, and it, it has a very significant um, you know commodities market, which would attract a lot of global. Yeah, I mean, finance. I think that was that was the case in 2013, 14. That was you know that was that's why yeah, yeah at least from a certain view, which I think we'd we'd agree with, that is part of the motivation for uh, bringing people into into something like the EU is to open up their markets. That's just yeah, not, it's not even hidden that that is no, part that, of the that's idea, exactly right? Exactly right. Is that but they say that's you know there are there are benefits to that. Yeah, of course there are benefits to that. Um, so, so I think what you're also talking about is, uh, relevant to when you look at America and China or the West and China, you see how China came out of coronavirus and how the West have, and the economic difference of the two, you can easily see that that can translate into, um, you know, more conflict, more, um, uh, a greater motivation to try and build up wealth through, uh, less than legitimate means. Mm. Um, so the next, uh, the next, uh, slide I think is very interesting as well. He says, this was in October, 2021. This was a, a more of a, not a private forum, but a, a forum directly to, uh, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. He answered a question. He said, I feel that it is quite possible that a war or a conflict can break out after this pandemic of coronavirus ends and its ruinous effects could last for many years before it returns to normality. Thus, we must pray that such circumstances may not arise that may lead to wars and that the world leaders act with sense so that the global situation can stabilize as quickly as possible and return to normal. And we can maybe even say that this is something which uh, which potentially Russia have used as well. Um, this would be an interpretation of the events, but I mean, it's certainly, 
is the fact that Russia is attacking at a time when the West is uh, necessarily weakened uh, greatly by coronavirus, whereas in many respects, Russia's economy, uh, if you look at their commodity stocks, if you look at their uh, debt to GDP ratio, in some of its basics is actually more sound than a lot yeah. of the Western commodities, yeah. when a lot of the Western markets. And is this a time when you know China are going to invade Taiwan, potentially? Is this a time when uh, these things are going to be exploited. These weaknesses are going to be exploited. Yeah. And the caliph is here warning the whole world against this kind of practice. Yeah. You know, don't take advantage of your fallen foe. Yes. Um, you know, act with, with as much justice as possible. Um, so I think this is a, uh, it's just remarkable, um, you know, the kind of advice which he's given over the years and how it's evolved along with the developing world situation. But actually his advice really predated it and it kind of, he saw yeah. the, he saw the, the, um, the root of it. Mm. And then we've just seen it flourish. Yes. And now people take, you know, oh, there's a big tree here. But actually the root of it was there all along, which was these human values of greed, of materialism, uh, and of in injustice mm. uh, that inevitably bloom. And True, that's what but it, you know, greed and justice has been there for a long time, actually. Mm. Um, especially so it was. in the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in the 21st century. I think the key point here is, is that why did he start saying it around this time? Mm. Why in 2012, 2013 did he start making this very clear, very explicit to Theresa May sitting there, Boris Johnson sitting there in the peace symposium? Mm. Why did he put it like that? Uh, and the reason ultimately is because, you know, he's guided by God. Mm. I think we have to state that very clearly that the caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community is uh, the representative mm. of the um, Messiah of the age. Uh, he is, um, as such, the person who is... Uh, commissioned um in the sense of uh, appointed um by a uh, a process which is divinely guided mm -hmm. um and so it's he is god's man on earth if you wanted to put it on a in a kind of um colloquial sense yeah and so that's the fundamental yeah core issue as to why now because he's he was a, he was a caliph from 20, 2003 yeah so why is it around 2010 around that time you know, he started making these statements much more explicit. Mm. Um, uh, it's not only because of, that he sees with the light of divine insight, mm. but also God, God guides him directly on these matters as well. Mm. Absolutely. Um, I mean, let's just, to, to close this off, let's talk about what he said you should, what we can do to avert this. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have here him talking to Boris Johnson and the next one him in Congress. So I just put these up. But, uh, but he says this in the next quote, you'll be able to see, he says, uh, and this has been his message throughout in all of these speeches. Yeah. He hasn't just been fear-mongering, he's actually... No, 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 I mean, the whole, his whole thing was that we can avert it. In fact, he said that many, many times. He said that this can be averted if people change their, yeah. um, their practices uh, as well as their beliefs. Hmm. So uh, he said in May 2021 to a group of journalists from Gambia, if there is no justice, there is no peace. If you have double standards, as we can see in today's world, shown by the big powers... They cannot maintain peace in the world. This is why you can see there is disturbance in the world today. So if there is no justice, there is no peace. Now, why do you think that? How are those two things linked? Um, I think you can't have justice ultimately without accountability. Okay. But, but, what, but uh, more about justice and peace. Why do you think those, why is he saying that those two things are so intimately linked? Well, because injustice breeds a disorder. You know, and resentment and resentment and hatred. You yeah. know, if you bomb somebody's house and the children are the only ones who survive, guess yeah. what? When they grow up and they think of their parents who had died by these bombs, guess mm. what they're going to potentially go and do? Of yeah. the three of them, at least one of them might end up being a terrorist. Mm. You know, so it just breeds a cycle of violence. Yeah, um, that doesn't end. 
um, in terms of you know how to obtain justice well i mean the the next slide he he talks about this and again this is not something which is new he's been talking about this the, the whole time yeah he says i've been telling oh yeah here he says i've been telling i've been telling <laughs> all the time to the people of the world to politicians to leaders that they ought to change themselves and try to establish true justice absolute justice in the world and discharge their duties to their creator and their fellow beings otherwise there is no guarantee about what is going to happen and we can see a very dark and bleak end of this world. This was in September 2021. So uh, here he talks about absolute justice and recognizing your creator and your duties to your creator and to fellow beings. Yeah. Um, and I think you, you were going to talk about uh, accountability and, and yeah, is that so, part I mean, of how you think this, you know, the link between justice and recognizing your creator, is that how they link this idea of accountability? Yeah, I mean, I think we uh, we talk about accountability when it comes to our politicians being accountable to the people. We talk yeah. about accountability of doctors so that they don't you know, the medical malpractice doesn't occur. We even talk about things like accountability in construction work. Mm. You know that there should be audit and oversight of people who are constructing buildings. Yeah, I'm okay. very passionate about that person. Well. <laughs> so you know, accountability features in every every aspect of a civilized society. Yeah, and in fact, the hallmark of a civilized society is that everybody <laughs> is accountable. Yeah, you know, for their responsibilities. You have good courts. You have good police. Yeah, you exactly. Know. You have yeah. balanced judiciary against the against the legislation, legislature, etc. So yeah. you know that's. What a civilized society does, it creates systems of accountability between human beings. Hmm. Um, but ultimately, when these systems break down because of catastrophes such as war, pandemic, economic collapse, yeah. um, and these systems are no longer in place to hold people to account, yeah. then what is a, what are people accountable to which will keep them from behaving to take their neighbor's car, to take their neighbor's food, to yeah. shoot their neighbor in the head and take their supplies, yeah. right? to take their neighbor's home? What is to stop them? There is accountability is, the, is a motivating. Uh, it, it is the break. limiting factor. It's yeah. the limiting factor. It is the break on human behavior. Yeah. And um, if you don't have a belief in God, hmm. and you have a belief that this is all that there is, we are an accidental byproduct of, product of an accidental universe, and death is the end of all life. Yeah. Then you will necessarily seek to maximize your pleasure or seek to maximize your gain. I should say. Yeah. Depending upon what is your purpose and motivation in life. Right. If it's to live for your children and for your family, if you're in a situation where their lives are under threat, and the only way you can see out is to go and rob your neighbor, yeah. that, that is ultimately the inevitable conclusion of, of your of going to be of your mindset, and because you don't have a limiting factor there. Yeah. So people often point to less developed countries and they say, "Oh, well, you know, there, you know, there's all this lawlessness there. They are, they, uh, you know, you go there, your life is under danger, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Mm -hmm. And it's true, but those are still in societies that are usually quite religious. Mm. Right. So can you imagine if they didn't have the break, the limiting factor of belief in God, that God is watching them, that mm. they will be held accountable for their actions after death, mm. which is why actually when it's focused on politicians and world leaders is very significant because politicians and world leaders often feel already that they are above the law. In many respects, they literally are. And in many respects, they literally are. They pass legislation that you can't prosecute them once they leave office. Yeah. You know, so... Um, the fact that he's addressing politicians and world leaders and he says to them explicitly, you should try and change yourself. Yeah. Stop trying to change the world out there. Begin mm. with yourself. Yeah. Right? Uh, I think that's a very important principle that they're not gonna, you're not going to get absolute justice until the people who feel that they are above the law and in some respects are above certainly um, what we would consider the ordinary person's law. Yeah. Even from a particular it's a banal, simple this aspect of taxing, you know, yeah. tax havenry and, and dodging tax. Um, politicians and leaders do it very regularly. Mm. Um, so, you know, unless they change and become 
um, you know, people who feel that they are accountable to something greater than themselves, uh, then you're not going to get absolute justice in the world. And also when you uh, have a, when you believe in a creator and you genuinely believe in a creator and you believe that others are the product of that creator, that they are the creation, Yes. then you nat- naturally have a compassion for them. You naturally recognize that you cannot mistreat them because you both belong to the same being. Yeah. It's like when, you know, if you have the child, a child that you see on the street, you may be sympathetic towards them, but you're not going to have any special compassion to them when compared to, say, the child of your brother, yes, right? Yes. Because the child of your brother, you have an intimate link with that, with the, with the one uh, that the child came from. Yes. And in this case as well, when you have, um, when you, you know, you may see someone in Vietnam or China or whatever it is, or Ukraine or Russia, you know, they may they may have no real link to you culturally or familiarly or anything. But if you see them as just other beings of the same creator, then you recognize that, you know, I have a responsibility to this person. This person is my kith and kin, Mm. and I will be held responsible for how I treat them because, you know, we're all the product of the same being. Yeah. So uh, I think... It's all the creation of the same being. The the creation of the same being. So I think this is another aspect of why when you recognize your creator truly... And I would say maybe in some of these uh, countries you spoke of, you know, there may be great variations in how much they really, uh, yes. true, how much true religiosity and spirituality has sunk into them. Yes. But when you truly recognize your creator and you truly see others as the creation of God, then it's inevitable not only that you are just to them, but that you are compassionate to them. Mm. You're not seeing them as a resource to be plundered. You're not seeing them as a population to be subdued. You're seeing them as um, as a people to be helped. And you don't see the world as a zero-sum game where it's either we win and you lose or you win and we lose, but actually we can both win and build a better world together. So I think this is what he's been talking about for so many years. He's been talking about recognize your creator, recognize your responsibility, your moral responsibility to your creator and your moral responsibility to others. And it's through that that you breed absolute justice and it's through the absolute justice that you have peace. But when you have absolute injustice, which is actually what we have been seeing over so many years, Mm. then you have a total absence of peace and you have further disorder, which I think, unfortunately, is is the path that the world has chosen, despite the caliph's warnings. You know, God willing, maybe there's still time to turn back and maybe people will see this um, first shot across the bow, in a sense, from Russia as a warning that actually maybe we need to reconsider how things go on both sides. Yeah. Uh, And people can turn back from uh, from this dark path uh, upon which they have set out.